there's something really valuable to getting to those points and then realizing that like actually everything is okay you know i definitely would recommend making sure to put in time to maintain friend networks and especially with people who have gone through the journey before in one way or another it was hugely helpful for me to uh, speak with other other founders throughout the journey because it's it really is like a unique pathway but you recognize that people will go through all the ups and downs and come out the other side fine and you know worst comes to worst the company dies and you start again Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in-the-weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations, we handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. All right, guys, I gotta give another shout out to a quick sponsor of the show, Chili Piper. Did you guys know that 60% of inbound leads don't convert to a meeting? And that you can double your inbound conversions by eliminating the waiting period between the form fill and the meeting? And so with Chili Piper, you can turn those leads into meetings instantly with intelligent rules that auto-qualify and route leads in real time. Also, you never let leads fall through the crack because they have a two-way sync with your CRM, which just helps also give you clean attribution on those leads at the end of the day. So with Chili Piper, you have no more leaky funnel. Instead, you've got more leads, more meetings, and more pipeline. Start turning leads into meetings today with Chili Piper. Visit chilipiper.com slash leaders to learn more. Hey, leaders, welcome back. This is Ledge. Got another great episode for you. This is Alec Zoff, CTO and co-founder of Wealth. Alec, welcome. Uh, super cool to hang out. Looking forward to your insights and story. Uh, but please give an introduction of yourself for the uh, audience. Absolutely. Thanks, Ledge. And uh, really happy to be here. So yeah, as, as Ledge said, I'm Alex Zoff, CTO, co-founder of Wealth. Uh, we started the company about seven years ago now and have had sort of a winding path through various things. My, my studies were in biomedical engineering, went into algo trading, music data analytics, and finally ended up in health incentives, trying to deliver ways that uh, motivate patients to take better care of themselves, especially patients with, uh, with chronic conditions who haven't been the best at taking care of themselves in the past. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's, let's dive into that. How do we do that? Uh, you know, fewer Big Macs certainly, and uh, maybe a little workout here and there, but I mean, there's, there's a lot going on there. I'm thinking like behavioral economics and, you know, social behavioral sort of norms and psychology. I mean, you got a whole lot going on there and I'm guessing, uh, there's, copious data and maybe some AI and other fun things. So yeah, please tell the story. Yeah, absolutely right. And it's it's been so interesting to see kind of how the original dream has stayed the same and changed as we've gone through. You know, today we're working primarily with Medicaid and Medicare populations, and we're applying what we call motivational engineering. And the idea is there's lots of great digital health solutions uh, that in sort of the first wave of digital health we're able to uh, help sort of coordinate. So think about just EHRs and things like that. And then the second wave, lots of tools that work for people who have 
sort of good to medium levels of motivation. Um, you know, I think about like an Amada Health or Noom or something like that, where you take someone who's who's kind of halfway there and really wants to get good, um, and you give them great tools to become better at managing their health. And our uh, job as wealth, we're really looking at sort of the the third wave of motivational engineering. And what we think about there is how do we create de novo motivation, right? How do we start with um, a patient who has a, a pretty complex condition? Maybe they're hypertensive and have congestive heart failure, and maybe they haven't been taking their medications. So how do we get them to be motivated? Uh, how do we ultimately change their identity from being someone who's sort of disengaged from the healthcare system to someone who is on a daily basis taking the actions that are necessary to improve their health and to make to live the, the best and longest life that they can. I know a little bit about habit forming and it really is just sort of a, a repetition and finding some kind of motivational mechanism that that works for that particular person's brain. I I know like for my in my own self, you know, I always was somebody who thrived based on having sort of a, an aggressive coach like in athletics. But when I was on my own, I wasn't going to do those things unless I knew, you know, sort of later on, I would get my my ass kicked. So, you know, I, I struggled to find any kind of motivational technique until just recently when I just realized that if I just write it on my mirror and it's in my face all the time, uh, that seemed to make enough difference to get me you know, over the hump. And I just thought that was strange that, you know, at uh, a late stage in my life to finally hack my own brain, I imagine you kind of wrestle with with this in aggregate. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. You talk about writing on your mirror. I, I would say we're sort of writing it on the patient's black mirror, right? Like on their phone. We're using this this daily, at least once daily, oftentimes multiple times daily, reminding the patient about what they're supposed to do and applying this trigger behavior reward loop. So think about an act as simple as taking your medication. You know, you might not be motivated to take it because it's not going to make you feel any better in the near term. It might take weeks or months of taking your medication correctly for you to start feeling better. And so we want to take that long-term health outcome that you're going to have, the, the better feeling that you're going to have, the better health outcomes you're going to have, the better cost outcomes for you and for your, your health uh, plan. And we want to bring that forward now, right? We want to make that available to you now as a patient with this trigger behavior reward loop. Um, because every single one of these actions, you are, you know, incrementally increasing um, your own health the, and the good feeling you're going to have later. It's just hard to hard for most people to, and you know, even for myself to sort of project that into the future. Yeah, absolutely. Like, do I want one cookie now or two cookies later? I want it now, you know? <laughs> so. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Or like, you know, if I'm taking an action now, that's only going to benefit me a month from now. Uh, it's often hard to prioritize that against all the other things that are going on in my day. And so what we're trying to do is make that really present, really tangible by saying, great, listen, here's a reminder. We're going to give you this trigger of what you're supposed to be doing. And then you're going to do this absolutely dead simple behavior. We want the, the amount of energy that's required to be as little as possible. So you know, pull up your phone, tap on the push notification, the Wealth app opens directly to a camera, snap a picture of yourself taking your medications, just you know, the pills in your hand or in your pill dispenser. And then immediately you've got this feedback that says, great, you did this task. You're going to keep your reward for today. Um, so we use sort of a loss aversion methodology. Um, you're going to keep this, this reward for today. And if you just keep doing that the rest of the month, at the end of the month, you're going to get paid out your reward amount onto a reloadable debit card. And so it's really tangible, really motivating, and it's hitting this trigger behavior reward loop. 
which really helps to train that behavior and over time shift the patient's identity, create this habit and shift the patient's identity to being someone who is adherent, who is good at managing their health. And as they start to feel those health benefits, then that becomes a really ingrained habit that they can continue on with in their lives. Right. That kind of reminds me of the teacher who would say, you know, sort of the opposite, right? That you, you all start with a hundred in my class and uh, it's your job to do the right things to, you know, not have that taken away from you, which is, it's just the other side of the, the coin, but for some reason our brains behave in a way that loss aversion is, uh, is more rewarding psychologically than, uh, you know, sort of gain, uh, which, yeah. which is interesting, right? So, Yeah, that's exactly right. And we, you know, a lot of the way that we've structured our programs comes from the, the psychological research, behavioral economics research literature, where we're looking at all these studies out there that look either at behaviors in general or at health behaviors in particular, and try to understand what are the best ways to motivate these certain types of behavior. So a lot of what we're doing is, is taking the best research that's out there and turning that into pieces of our program. And then the really awesome thing is now we're at the scale where we're addressing tens of thousands of patients uh, and having them all flow through our application. So we're actually able to do, on a scale that's sometimes larger than the existing research studies, our own behavioral economics research, try out different things and see what is the most motivating. That's really cool. So you get to play on the research side kind of as well. So, all right. So talk about your, you know, background. Did you stumble into this? Because the things you described there, I mean, I can imagine sort of algorithmic trading is in fact, you know, looking at the behaviors of massive amounts of things and trying to predict them. So that makes a little bit of sense to me. And then, you know, some of the other stuff you talked about, but yeah, just, I don't know, walk through that journey because you were a practitioner and, and a scientist and sort of engineer and then into the founder role. And I'm, I'm always interested in that shift from, you know, sort of doer to then creating your own thing there. That's, that's a huge difference. And I love to find out how people did that. Yeah. It was a big leap and, and sort of a long time coming for me. I think if, if you really want to understand my journey, you probably have to go back to middle school. There was a, there's a business that a friend and I started called Recycled Balls when we were in, in high school. And the backstory is that I was out playing tennis with my friend Lloyd Cargo, and I went in to use the bathroom or something. I came back out, and he'd collected all these tennis balls from like outside back in the woods where we'd hit them over. He was like, you know what? We're going to sell these tennis balls. And so we started selling them on eBay, uh, and it turned out there was a huge demand for tennis balls, used tennis balls for people to use with their dogs, but also to put on the, the legs of chairs uh, in schools to reduce the noise. So we tapped into this market and ended up, ended up getting in touch with a bunch of different uh, tennis pros and starting to buy tennis balls directly from them once they were done with practice and then resell them. Uh, and so that's actually how I got, got my start in programming. I'm the technical co-founder of Wealth. So I, I learned how to build websites so that we could build uh, sort of a digital storefront to sell these tennis balls and and sort of cut out the middleman of eBay. Um, so that, that was the earliest. And that's where I got my really first taste of entrepreneurship and just loved it. Loved the idea of like having these problems that I could solve um, and solving all these incremental next problems, figuring out as I went along and learning some of the technology that goes with it. So that's, that's sort of the start of my journey. I definitely came from a, a technical background. Uh, my father was really great about teaching me lots of you know, things. I was building electric motors from scratch with him when I was young, just to learn some of the principles. 
so I, was, I think with my mind and with my with my background, I was destined to be an engineer. And when I was in high school, I, I wrote a paper for an English class, actually, uh, that was all about interfaces. And I got obsessed with, with neural interfaces. So basically what Neuralink is doing now uh, with BCIs and uh, decided that that's what I wanted to go to college for. I wanted to go get a degree in biomedical engineering so I could learn more about um, how to build devices like that. And ultimately, as I went through school, I just decided that that wasn't the path for me. I didn't want to go into a long route of uh, PhD and postdoc and everything that it took to really go through that field. But the the same fascination with with connecting to different parts of behavior, with technology, and with creating new things uh, has sort of always been there. And uh, yeah, so then as I was coming out of school, I had been playing around with algo trading on the side, just building like stock or currency trading models and ended up going to work with a company called Orc Software, uh, worked as a sales engineer there and really loved it. Got to be exposed to the proprietary trading uh, houses in Chicago and New York and Brazil um, to see all the different things that they were doing and uh, to help them implement some of those, those software and hardware systems. Uh, so it was a really fascinating way to get exposed to data and to hardware and to really kind of making things count where uh, where it's really important and critical and secure. And that was really fun, really challenging. But as I was nearing the end of that, I really just wanted to do something that sort of lit me up a little bit more. And I've been a drummer for a long time, since I was maybe nine years old. I've been learning and playing drums in a bunch of different bands. And uh, a friend of mine from college had started a company called Next Big Sound. And uh, Next Big Sound was a digital analytics company for the music industry, which involved a bunch of different stuff. Originally, it was pulling data from social media sites. So it really got its start pulling data from MySpace uh, and then Facebook and YouTube, and then eventually um, got to the point where they had built this business intelligence tool for record labels that pulled in all these sources from across the web and then integrated it with a bunch of um, partnership feeds. So we were getting data from radio airplay companies, getting a full feed of every stream on Spotify, getting all the detections from YouTube, all this really great data, and then reporting that back to the record labels alongside their sales data. So they could figure out how are our bands performing? um, Who's going to be the next big sound, right? Who's going to be like the next up and coming artist um, and really doing that in a data-driven way. And um, so I think working at next big sound, you know, I I came in as, as employee number eight, I think. And I uh, was with them for a while. They grew the company to be about 25 people and then sold to Pandora. So it was really cool to be able to see that whole journey from you know a small group of people uh, getting its its first uh, set of customers to growing that company, uh, raising money. And I watched that all happen and said, this is so cool. I want to do this. And you know, now's the time. There's this interesting moment where you you kind of look at the progression of life and think about risk and when are you willing to take the risk that it's going to take to start a company? Um, I was lucky enough to be in a position where, you know, I'm an engineer, so there's some good fallback options if, you know, my startup fails. And also, you know, when you're in your sort of mid to late twenties, I wasn't, you know, married, didn't have kids or anything. Uh, it's a great time to just take the leap and try to build an airplane on the way down. (laughs) Yeah. Well said, well said. Okay. So then you get to the 
there must be the kitchen table or a garage moment or something. You have a co-founder. So, you know, like the team building aspect of that is just tremendous. You didn't jump by yourself. Uh, yeah. Love to hear, you know, what's the space between exit happened and you sort of went and did something. And now there's a company seven years later. So uh, there had to be some pivotal stuff that happened right there in that next year. Yeah. Yeah. And so the story actually happens before Next Big Sound exited. Um, I knew that they were on a, a good trajectory, that they were going to have a successful outcome. But I also knew I just needed to start my own thing. Um, I didn't want to wait any longer. So this was back in mid-2014. I started looking around. I was living in New York City, started looking around and talking to uh, a bunch of different people who had ideas of things in the health space. Sometimes I would meet them through like a referral of a friend. And then I was also on a platform at the time called Founder Dating. And so this is one of those platforms where you can put up essentially like an enhanced LinkedIn profile, right? You can say, hey, I'm an idea guy, or I'm a business guy, I'm a technical co-founder, I'm in this stage of, of sort of the entrepreneurial journey, maybe I just have an idea, or maybe I have a real business already, um, and I'm looking for this kind of help. I remember that. What happened to that? <laughs> there was a bunch that. of them, and I think they went through various stages of, of merging or buying each other. I think, I want to say that that founder dating maybe got bought by like, co-founder lab or something like that but anyway i think you know we're we're one of the success stories i met my co-founder matt loper uh, on that site and he sent me a really great cold email you know i had talked about in my profile that i was really looking for something in the health space um, wanting to do like positive social impact uh, and wanting to be able to use data in a really exciting way to make that happen and he wrote me a, a really great cold email pitch uh, and I just knew I had to get coffee and, and hear what he was about. And so the backstory is that Matt had actually been thinking about this for a while. So he had been working as an investment banker uh, in the healthcare space, talking with the you know executives of all these different health insurers and seeing the wave that was coming to health insurance uh, or to the healthcare space in general, which is this shift to value-based payment. So the idea is that previously or you know, still currently in some parts of the market, um, there's this fee-for-service model where doctors or hospital systems are just getting paid to offer services, right? To do this surgery, to have this appointment, to run these tests. But the industry was shifting towards value-based payment, where the idea is you have this outcome that you want to deliver. And as a doctor or as a hospital system, you commit to providing this outcome. And then it's up to you to make that happen uh, within a reasonable cost, because there's going to be maybe a standard payment, or there might be bonuses if you can provide um, the same quality of care for a better price. And watching that all happen, you know, I think Matt was really looking at what's going on in the market. What is sort of, what are the major things that can be sort of fixed or helped in order to actually deliver better outcomes? And it seemed really clear that there's a super important step in this whole process, which is involving the patient, right? You can have doctors that are choosing better, you know, better joints for the hip. But if you don't have the patient go and do their PT afterwards and do their exercises or whatever, you're not going to have great outcome. And especially so in chronic disease. And so Matt had this idea of let's loop in patients to this shared savings model that's happening. Let's have them be able to benefit from the better outcomes and reduced cost that their behavior is going to help to create. And I just love this. And especially the combination of that with the idea that you could use data to do this at scale. You could be able to look at all the data that's coming out of electronic health records, coming out of claim systems, coming out of labs data, um, and merge that with behavioral data to really understand, hey, for each of these patients, 
what is the right thing? What, what are the right things to be incentivizing? Who are the right patients to be focusing on the most? How can we sort of at scale algorithmically detect this information about patients and sort of buy and sell their health, right? <laughs> Using incentives. Right. Yeah. So I have to, I have to deviate into the the data nerd world just because I'm curious. Like I've talked to a lot of founders who have, you know, sort of grand ideas of how to unify uh, disparate data sets from like, you know, sort of all over the place. And usually they find out that, you know, you're actually signing up for like, you know, two and a half years of writing ETL and data cleansing scripts. And like, you really, really don't get to do any modeling or anything that even remotely resembles fun. Uh, for for a long time, I I suspect the early part of the seven years has something to do with that. Oh yeah, yeah, and uh, you know it's funny. I think coming in, uh, I definitely definitely knew the pain of what you're talking about more than more than many. Yeah, you know, I, I had essentially been a data engineer for the past three years, integrating all these different data sources at Next Big Sound, writing the parsers, writing the Hadoop. Uh, jobs in Java and the pig scripts and whatever else to pull things together, doing the entity disambiguation. I had seen all kinds of unclean data and helped to structure it. So I definitely knew some of that, but I think it was still a surprise to me how long it did take in the healthcare industry to get to a place where we had all the data. I, you know, It's great to be talking to you now because so many years in, we are now at the place where we do have all this really fascinating data flowing through. But yeah, the process took quite a long time. You know, I think Looking back, the first year, maybe even two years, a lot of it was about finding the right place where the need was the highest for this uh, type of intervention that we had, this approach to motivational engineering. Had to find those patient populations where there wasn't motivation quite enough and where the problems were large enough that if we were to solve motivation in these patients, that it's worth it. And so iterated a lot, built out some first versions of the app, tried it in a handful of patient populations and really uh, had a couple anchor customers that were what got us started. Not big ones, right? Be like maybe working in a population of 50 people being enrolled into the app. But that's enough for us to do sort of this business science to show that our intervention worked. And we've always had this really heavy focus on outcomes. So the good thing, you know, I come from a biomedical engineering background. Matt comes from a bioengineering background. We're both really approaching this as a business, but also as like a research study that we want to be able to prove some kind of statistical significance in the difference and demonstrate, um, hey, what we're doing really is driving better outcomes. And so I think that was critical from the beginning to be able to go from our first customer to our second, to our third, to our fifth, you know, um, and at each time we're going to a new customer, be able to show these great outcomes um, from the previous ones so that we could start expanding our scale as we went. Yeah, database outcomes is a huge part of, of sales. And there's a lot of tools and processes that kind of have these soft outcomes. And you're like, well, you know, like I can show there's a healthy person X now at the end or whatever. And any version of business has this. Uh, but real KPIs and data and the difference between position A and position B, uh, I do think that would put you in a really good spot. That's good advice for Anyone thinking about, I don't care what it is, any service or technology or anything like that, start measuring your baseline right away on something and, and track as many metrics as you can on the back of a napkin 
And just did we it did we impact that or at least have some part that we could plausibly say we made that thing go up and to the right, uh, you know? Because I think that's huge, and a lot of businesses don't have that, and that is the key to selling and bringing on more clients, uh, without question. Yeah, I think it's been really helpful, and especially in our space now. You know, in the early days. As I mentioned, you were looking maybe 50, 100, 200 people. Now we're doing things where we're comparing many thousands of patients to, you know, let's say if we did a, a 3,000 person uh, engagement and then we're comparing it to 10,000 other people who weren't on the program and looking at sort of a difference in distances analysis, even creating some sort of matched cohort uh, lookalike um, sort of synthetic control groups from the unenrolled people. Um, so, like, I would say now we're at a place where there's much more sophistication in the measuring of that. And we're often doing it in some kind of partnership with our customer. But even the earliest days, even just being able to show between, you know, this 50 people and this 50 people that applying this incentive led to this behavior, which led to this outcome was hugely helpful. Did you ever have any moments that were sort of like the red flag or, you know, we feel scared types of things around, you know, I don't know, a real bad day or big mistake got made. You know, those are the ones that I, I like to learn from. Yeah. On the big mistake side, I don't think we've had any, like I've certainly had some in, in previous uh, companies where we're like, oh no, we've like deleted half the database and we've got to, you know, <laughs> restore or whatever it was. I think most of the ups and downs that we really face as a company were due to just the chaos of, uh, of healthcare and enterprise sales and, and fundraising, I would say as well. You know, I, I think we've been We've been lucky to have good support all the way through, but there's definitely been times where the company, you know, especially in our earlier days, you know, had two weeks of funding left or something like that because, uh, like, a lead investor decided they were no longer investing in healthcare at all, or a, you know, a major customer got hung up on a regulatory snag and decided that they're, you know, they had to push all the revenue forward by six months or something like that. Yeah, cash cash flow management is, I mean, that's everything. I don't care if you have funding or not. Like, and I think people mistake that too often like you you should be very frugal you should be very smart about cash management uh in, in any business and that that comes up practically on every founder conversation i had i love to tell a story that we in our most recent venture we actually had a spreadsheet where it would it was the cash flow like day-to-day -day cash flow reconciliation and it would actually had a a gif of a dumpster fire that it was our job to <laughs> make the dumpster fire get farther and farther away. You had to make it fun. Otherwise you'd be like, Oh my God, we're broke. You know, this is horrible. Yeah. But if we could find a way, what was gamified, you know, sort of uh, pushing the disaster down the runway. <laughs> so. Totally. Yeah. And you know, I've, I've read some, um, I've read some founders or investors talk about the, the wisdom of sort of exposing that information to, uh, your employees to be able to say, "Hey, this is our current runway," and you know we're always trying to figure out what are the best ROI investments for us to make with this cash. You know, who's the right person to hire right now? What are the right resources to acquire, or you know, vendors to bring in that can help us? But also, yeah, trying to be frugal and and trying to keep an eye on that. And yeah, it's been it's been an interesting journey as the finances change throughout the course of our company's history. Um, you know, we're obviously managing a lot more cash flow now. You still need to bring pretty good fiscal discipline, but thinking a lot more now about 
we're sort of already winning and, and how do we get to that next step? How do we apply these resources that we have to really take big swings and, and get to that next level of, uh, of scale? Right. And it, it's, it's just relative to, I look at like sort of the each 10 X, right? Like you, you can make a bigger bet. It's still the same percent of the world. It's just when you had like, you know, a thousand dollars in the bank, making a hundred dollar bet was a lot, but if you have a hundred thousand or you have a million or 10 million or a hundred million, it's still the real same relative size. And can you then feel a little bit, uh, you know, sort of more risk tolerant on, uh, making what are effectively those bets. I think we all hope that they're educated bets, you know, based on experience. Sometimes there just isn't the data to make a brilliant decision. You kind of just have to, you know, stick your finger in the wind. There's a lot more than that, or a lot more of that than uh, you might expect, right? Um, there's a number of times where there's a bunch of options and you do your research and then ultimately you have to just kind of make a call. Absolutely. Do you guys do that on an ongoing basis? Like strategically speaking, you are in, in one sense is an entrenched sort of, you know, regulatory heavy space, but in another sense, like there's a massive amount of, of capital and attention and news and, you know, shifting change. So it can be really hard to get any sense uh, in, you know, healthcare, financial services, you know, sort of any of these big spaces where like right for disruption, uh, but what and how because everybody's sort of looking at it and thinking in different ways research can be extremely difficult like how do you think about strategic direction in that ecosystem yeah i mean you know the the thing that we learned very early on is you've got to be solving someone's top five problem in order to really make it into their headspace and and get something done oftentimes the product that we're building and, and deploying in some cases, it's disrupting an existing solution, but in a lot of cases, this is just sort of a problem that's sitting there that's hard, and it may be it may be partially addressed by things like care management teams or other like you know pharmacy interventions. But there's still a lot more to be done, and so what we really look for is how do we find the right people within the organization uh, that we're selling to who have that problem. You know, we've obviously thought about how do we structure our product to meet that problem's needs. And then how do we communicate that to them? And in our sales strategy, make sure we're talking to the right people within the organization. Um, so oftentimes we have some champion who is, you know, maybe the VP of pharmacy or something. We're also trying to come in at a higher exec level so that we're friendly with the CEO and maybe even talking to someone a little bit more junior. Um, so that we have these like a few different levels within the organization where then as things start to get sticky, got multiple viewpoints, we can get that C-suite to lean a little bit when there's some, you know, legal or compliance is, is uh, throwing a fit about something and the CEO can say, maybe you should look at it again. <laughs> you Just know? do it. Right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, you, <laughs> yeah. That constellation decision-making and up and down the hierarchy, you know, all over the org. Uh, and then, you know, nine months into your sales process, somebody that you were, you know, tight with decides to leave the company. I mean, this is, this is real stuff for, for enterprise sales and uh, healthcare tends to move. Uh, glacially, you know, and the buying groups and all the stuff that you don't have to deal with, uh, you know, in other contexts. It, I I wonder, like, you know, you you seem to have done well and successfully entered a startup into the healthcare space. Would you advise that now? Because there's a lot of founders that are intrigued by, you know, sort of entering healthcare. And 
I personally am terrified of it. It's the one space that I have never done any startup in and I don't want to. So uh, convince me otherwise, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Well, I mean, I would start with the caveat that the healthcare industry is huge, right? It's like saying you're going to enter the transportation industry. Well, there's a thousand times of transport. I think it really depends on what part of healthcare you're going into, the way that you're going to approach it. There's a lot of new brands that are going DTC. And I think that's an obvious disruption, right? And I think that um, it makes sense, the model that they're approaching there. I think if you're going into the enterprise side B2B, or if you're going in selling workflow tools, you definitely really want to get in and just thoroughly understand that corner of the market that you're that you're working in. I think it's been it's been tempting for technologists to come in and say, hey, we've got technology. All you need is just to automate this process. When in reality, there's just so much complexity in the process and so many different stakeholders and so many different user personas that need to be served who are coming with different constraints. It's definitely something we've had to learn along the way to sort of, especially at the start, to narrow our niche so that we can really build something that addresses that well um, and then to gradually start expanding. So I think, you know, if you're coming in as uh, an entrepreneur in healthcare, um, it's great to be working with subject matter experts. My partner is a UX researcher, and she, if she were speaking on my behalf right now, would be saying, get in there and really talk to all the users that you're going to be working with and approach that in a systematic way, really understand the context. I think there is, there are lots and lots of opportunities to create value in healthcare still. There's lots and lots of inefficiencies in various ways, but understand, like do the research to really understand why the inefficiency exists. Um, there are a lot of cases where technology can help or where new ideas can help. Um, but don't come in thinking that tech is just going to be the panacea. There's lots of things we've had to come and understand as we go through it and work within the, the framework. But I would say the best thing about entering healthcare is there really are a lot of people who genuinely care about making uh, better health outcomes for patients and you know, there's lots of people who have studied for years and years and years to become doctors and then done more on top of that to become administrators and really uh, do care about making better things. Uh, and so it's it's such a pleasure to work with those people, especially the ones who are willing to, to sort of get in there and take a swing and uh, really try to change things up. So I, you know, it's, it's a long journey. It's going to be a lot slower than doing things in the consumer world. But if you can catch the right tailwind, there's a huge market to be working in. And uh, there really are people that you're going to enjoy working with. And at the end of the day, you get to be creating impact in something that uh, really changes people's lives. That's awesome. I'm going to finish in a different way here. So I, I need to ask you, like, you're a busy founder. You're working on technology this whole time. And we I don't know if we'll have the video or not, but he's had a smile on his face this whole time. And you know, so I want to know, like, mental health is a huge thing for founders and like how how do you keep positive, you know, and happy in the middle of, you know, like relative insanity where you're making, you know, big choices, people are dependent on you, you know, that, what is that regime of awareness and activity that, that you do? Because I, I, uh, I think it's important. And we, we kind of ignore that as a, as a founder space, like we're supposed to hustle and be miserable all the time. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I'm trying to think where to start. There's, uh, I've definitely been through so many ups and downs through the course of this company. You know, I think one of the things that's always there, uh, it lessens over time as you start to get a little bit more security and the, and the company sort of has more customers and is more real. But there's always this sort of existential doubt of, you know, is this thing that I'm building going to work? Is it meaningful? There's a lot of opportunity costs. And so I think 
definitely one of the baseline level things of uh, managing your own psychology is really just coming to terms with it. Something that helped me a lot was just thinking about, okay, what are all the scenarios that might happen? What are the best possible outcomes? What are the worst possible outcomes? And I think, honestly, something that was really helpful for me to manage my psychology was also, we, you know, especially in our early days, in the first couple of years, it felt like there were some times where we were almost at those worst outcomes, right? Where you might've invested a bunch of time and it would be for nothing. And I think there's, there's something really valuable to getting to those points and then realizing that like, actually everything is okay. You know, I definitely would recommend making sure to put in time to maintain friend networks. And especially with people who have gone through the journey before in one way or another, it was hugely helpful for me to uh, speak with other, other founders throughout the journey. Cause it's, it really is like a unique pathway, but you recognize that, uh, people will go through all the ups and downs and come out the other side fine. And, you know, worst comes to worst, the company dies and you start again. So I think like understanding that, that, that what feels like potential, you know, death of this thing you've built or embarrassment, uh, is really just an end gives you a little bit, um, more capacity to keep moving uh, and have a little less fear. And then I think besides that, it's really just figuring out how do I focus on what it is that I need to do today? Uh, what are the next highest priorities that I can do to move the company forward, to prevent blockages, to uh, keep everybody moving, and then just hire really good people? <laughs> I think that the biggest thing that's released, uh, relieved my stress along the way um, has been when we're really uh, diligent and really picky about who we hire, we end up with really great people. And those people can really help to share the load uh, and sort of can join in with the dream. So, you know, I think that's really helpful for me. Otherwise, work-life balance, play some drums, go for a run, walk the dog. Um, you know, in startups, sometimes there are times where there is absolutely no work-life balance and, you know, you're working from seven in the morning to midnight. But then there's other times where it smooths out a bit. And so I think it's really important, uh, especially in those smooth times, to take care of yourself. Uh, and then in those hard times, prioritize one or two habits that really help keep you sane. Like being on podcasts, totally. Exactly. <laughs> I've never talked to somebody, a founder, that ever said, you know, we hired a bunch of schmucks and I'm so glad, you know. So like the team thing comes up over and over and over again. And I, I suppose we've all had a bad hire where we just, you know, hopefully did the uh, you know, hire fast, fire faster type of, of regime. But yeah, that, that, if, if there's one common thing that every guest says is, you know, I hired great people and, you know, I had a diligent process to do that. And the learning of that alone, uh, I know I used to be absolutely atrocious at this and now, uh, you know, having the disciplines to do it right, uh, have been huge. And, and your other point is absolutely right. When I blew up my first startup, close the doors, you know, sort of dusted off my wounds and next Monday start a consulting gig and start thinking about the next one. And, and it does, it does play out that way. And it feels, I, you also, you also wish like, you know, like put a line in the sand and say, you know, if I get here, shut it uh, before, you know, I burn everything down trying to save, you know, the, the Titanic. So I think that's a, it's a huge lesson too. And, and I love it when people sort of go, Hey, you know, I've had success after success after success. That was uh, not my journey. And I suspect not 
uh, everyone's journey. You just hear those stories sometimes. Yeah, definitely not. I mean, I think, you know, we've, at this point, I'm trying to go look back and count, been at least two, maybe three times where we were, the company was sort of on the verge of death. And coming that close to it, I do think like, yeah, it helps you to realize what what really matters about it and why you really care about it. I think one of the things that both my co-founder and I have is this pretty dogged persistence and unwillingness to lose. And even when that really helps when things are getting very tough, because what we're just focusing on is like, how do we keep moving? How do we keep this thing alive? How do we just, uh, so much of entrepreneurship, I think comes down to just surviving long enough for those big opportunities that do come along. Right. So I think, you know, we've, we've been lucky and persistent enough to survive until those big opportunities have come along. I think, uh, Looking back a little bit on our lives also, you know, I think Matt's training in investment banking, uh, especially, you know, some of those early days, it's pretty brutal. And so I think he's, he knows how to get put through the ringer and come out the other side, which has been a helpful skill to have. And myself, when I was uh, sort of quasi athlete in high school, I was doing cross country and track and running many miles. And so I think learning how to just kind of keep moving through discomfort is very valuable. (laughs) <laughs> you would be shocked the number of cross country and track runners I talk to. And I am. one also. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I think having had a, a pedigree or history of, uh, you know, beating yourself to the level of endurance, <laughs> you know, that to do that, uh, there must be some correlation to entrepreneurship. I'll have to do a study, but anyway, <laughs> like Alec, this was awesome. Appreciate all your insights. It's very, very cool to have this. I think you're a very authentic guy and I hope that, you know, these lessons have, have come through. If anybody wants to uh, contact you or the company, what's the best way to, to do that? Yeah, you can definitely reach out to me directly at alec at wealthapp.com, W-E-L-L-T-H-A-P-P.com or hit me up at Alec Zopf on Twitter. Awesome, man. Thanks for coming out. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much, Legend. This is great. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com.